Down the right field line. Pretty well hit. LaVarne way. It's the right way here tonight. Yogi Berra said it's 90% mental. The other half is physical. My name is Ryan LaVarneway, major league catcher and minor league grinder. And I've spent the last 15 years playing professional baseball while evolving my mindset. I'm fascinated by optimizing that 90%. In this show, I'll talk to elite athletes and mindset coaches about what makes them tick and how they've overcome obstacles in their own careers on the way to finding success. This is Finding the Way. Hey guys, I'm Ryan LaVarneway and thank you for joining us on Finding the Way. Today, I am so excited to have my guest, Dr. Jonathan Fader. He has used performance coaching to help pro athletes, firefighters, high wire walkers, and everyday people be better at everything. He started his own group practice, Sports Strata, where he has mental performance training for athletes, both professional, semi-professional, and for business professionals. He's also worked with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the New York Football Giants, the New York Mets, and as I alluded to a second ago, the high wire walking Walenda family, which I'm so excited to dive into. Dr. Jonathan Fader, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a total pleasure, Ryan. Uh, it's you know I know that you and I think on the same level about. Uh, how to work with high performers and you know being one yourself I know we're gonna have a great conversation here Uh, I'm really excited I think you're the perfect guest for my podcast because my idea behind this is that high performance and mental skills training does not need to be only for athletes not only for the firefighters the high wire walkers the CEOs that you work with but everybody in in their everyday lives it it can help them find more satisfaction and help you be a better parent a better sibling Um, when I was doing my research on you I found that when you first got into psychology, you didn't even necessarily want to get into sports psychology. You just wanted to help people be their best. How did you end up in sports psychology and what is it about helping people be their best peak human performance that really gets you going? No, the big joke about from me and my friends and every professional athlete I've ever worked with is that like, you know, I I basically, I can barely throw and catch. (laughs) Um, I've been made fun of by, you know, I, I think my, my claim to fame in some ways is I've been made fun of the best athletes in the world. Um, and, um, you know, ironically, uh, so, you know, my background is, I, you know, I, I grew up uh, in New York City and um, I went to a performing arts high school, the school that the movie Fame was based after. And, you know, I, I studied drama there and I was really around all these high performing individuals, but in the field of performing arts. And I just was fascinated from a very young age at, at how where talent came from in general and you know whether it was someone on the stage or someone on the field you know how people got to be the best and also as you know you know coming through uh baseball how some people could have immense talent but not find a way to manifest it to have it come out and some people not seem to have a lot of talent at first but all of a sudden kind of you know get to the top and um and i got really lucky you know, I always say to people, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of, I think, opportunity is being there when the luck arrives, right? Like having the grit to stay in it to when things change. And so for me, they changed in uh, graduate school when I got my doctorate in clinical psychology. There was a professor there, Ron Smith, who was, you know, I just learned from being in his classes and, you know, being in some of being taught by him that he was working with the Houston Astros as a sports psychologist. And I was like, that's a job. Like I couldn't even believe it, you know? Um, and so I, I found a way to channel my interest in, in the psychology of talent and self-improvement and motivation into the world of sports, which has turned out to be one of the biggest blessings, uh, of my career. 
so so early on in, in your your answer there, you talked about something that's really near and dear to my heart, and it's probably my my greatest fear in life, or or has been one of my biggest drivers is reaching my potential and and overachieving. If you know, I'll, I'll say all the time, I'm not a great athlete, but I was able to achieve great things in athletics because of the grit you talk about. What is it that you learned about? You said, where does talent come from? And how do some people that have great talent underachieve and other people maybe with less talent overachieve? Where do you think the magic sauce is there? Man, look, I mean, we are going to have a jam-packed 25-minute conversation, but this is the money question of all time. And <laughs> I would say, I would say that, you know, and, and, and I think that I literally I've spent a large part of my life trying to answer it. Um, and I, 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 I'll give you like some some of my main observations. I would say people who succeed um, are people who um, personalize less. So, you know, people who don't succeed tend to think of negative consequences as failures um, and tend to you know, see their negative consequences as something permanent and inherent. Whereas people who do succeed are usually explain things as not permanent and not internal to them. So to use a specific example, I'm sure you can think of us in baseball, you know, the, the athlete that doesn't succeed is someone who, if, you know, they give up a home run, they say, it's because I suck. Um, and if they give up a home run, it's something that like, is going to destroy their game, destroy their career. Whereas people that do succeed are like, okay, that was not what I wanted to have happen here. And it's not like I'm not celebrating it. But at the same time, I know I, I have found ways to have faith in myself that I can get beyond this. And it's not something that's going to last forever. Like this is a new pitch. This is a new game. This is a new season. Um, some of that I've found can be taught. And some of that I think has to do with upbringing and kind of, you know, where, what, where you came from both biologically and environmentally, but a lot of it can be taught and a lot of it can be trained. And I think some people really work at it. Uh, most people work at their physicality, but don't work at their mentality. Right. So, so what I'm hearing you say is you give up a home run. That's not who I am. That's just something that happened. Exactly. What about, yeah. what about the positive consequences? Do they internalize those? Is it, is it when something good happens, that's me. Yeah, exactly. Well, so one of the best, you know, kind of, you know, one of the things that makes me think of is, I'm not sure if this was Ken Revisa, who was a legendary sports psychologist who said this, or um, another one of my friends or where I really came across this, but early in my career, there's a whole, there's a whole debate about kind of positivity and positive thinking. It's this massive debate that people have. Some people kind of shit on positive thinking. Some people think it's great. One of the things I heard that simplifies things a lot is to say, look, it's not a guarantee that thinking positively is gonna help you, but it's a guarantee that thinking negatively is gonna hurt you. And so, you know, I, what I think about this is, I, I have a phrase that I, that I talk about and, and that I think about in my, in my book, Life is Sport, um, which is that it's about objective optimism. It's about being honest with yourself and looking at your, your results, but also looking for reasons why you should believe in yourself, right? And they're there, right? Um, so, you know, the human mind, we have a negative bias, right? Um, we are built as humans to notice what is wrong. It's evolutionary necessary. It's evolutionarily necessary to do that, right? So 
we need to notice where the threats are, right? So we have to train ourselves out of that um, and train ourselves to, to balance towards also letting in positive data um, in a non-BS way, right? So fact-based, you can't, you know, you can't lie to yourself. Your brain won't accept that. But, you know, training yourself to observe the things that, that are proof that you're good enough, that you can do it. Yeah, you have to almost search for the positive or hunt for the positive. The, exactly the right. The proof of it, yeah. Exactly right. It's, you know, it's like anything else. We're, we're all fighting this battle towards, you know, our, our body, um, you know, going in directions we don't want to go, whether a professional athlete or not. Like I've seen guys roll up into spring training and they're like, oh, man, I got to turn it on here. Like we're all fighting. We all have this long spring training of our hopefully 80 to 90 year lives where we're just like working to keep our bodies in shape. And that's the same with our mentality. Our, 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 our mind gets lazy, gravitates towards moving away from challenges. Like at, at base rate, humans don't want to push themselves. We don't want to exert, right? And so the same thing is true of our mentality. We want to run away from our problems. We don't want to look our adversity in the eye and say like, you know what? This is the thing that I need to do. Like I, I always, one of the questions I borrowed from, I think it was, I think it comes from landmark form or somewhere, but I use this question a lot with myself and others. What is the thing you're pretending not to know about yourself? Right. And I think if you really answer that as an athlete, as a person, you find that you're avoiding stuff that is important. Um, and I, so I think that's the thing also that most successful athletes to back to your really great question, Ryan, you know, they answer the question of what they're pretending not to know. Right. They, they realize like, this is a person in my life that's not great for my identity. They say, you know what? I, I, I can't be on Instagram this much. It's just, you know, occupying too much. You know what? I have to shut off my phone an hour before, you know, the game, the presentation, whatever it is. And, I, and I'm not going to turn it on again until half an hour. As much as I want to look at all the great stuff people are writing about me on Twitter, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let my brain put together its idea of how I performed before I let it be influenced by others. I like that so much. And it's, it seems like what you're saying is that people know the answer already. And this, this kind of leads to one of the concepts that I've heard you talk about in your coaching is coaching has three different speeds. And, and it sounds like you're, you're lead, leading into the third speed of, of what the three speeds of coaching are. Can you, can you go over that for our listeners a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you know, so I, I've had the privilege of you know, seeing people coach in the NFL and MLB, I've seen people coach in hedge funds, I've seen people coach in firefighting and first responding and in medical settings, where a lot's on the line. And, you know, I would say that it used to be that the conception was like, there were kind of two kinds of coaching styles, players coach or kind of authoritarian, right. And what I've seen is that the best coaches develop um, three speeds or styles of coaching that they can move back and forth into. And, and by the way, the same goes for parenting. It's, it's, it's kind of the same dynamic. Co parenting is coaching in my mind, right? Uh, we think of it, you know, we, we just, we think of ourselves as having more control. Um, but I know from experience, at least in my set, that sometimes that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I, anyway, so, um, there are three styles. The one that we rely on most and that we think is what coaching really is. Uh, is what we call fixing. And, you know, fixing is, hey, I'm going to talk to you about your swing um, or here's, you know, something about your delivery or, you know, in other settings like, hey, I'm going to talk to you about how to do math or whatever it is that we're teaching someone. Um, 
And then that's a big part of coaching because almost always the coach, the parent, the boss has more transactional information. They have more knowledge than the person that they're working with. So it's appropriate. We need to do that. But what a lot of time we miss as coaches, as parents, as bosses, is that there's two other speeds that we're neglecting that are very, very, very powerful in terms of helping someone to develop as a human with a particular talent or skill or, or ability. And those two other skills, Ryan, um, are following. Following is listening well to the person you're talking to. And listening involves also speaking. So it's the ability to really, with your mind, your heart, your soul, be there with the other person and to have accurate empathy, um, to be able to reflect back the themes and the meanings and the emotions that you're hearing, um, and to really show the other person that you're getting it. And, and the, the point of that is empathy, but it's also that, as we talked about, you know, generally speaking, people have their answers within them. And by doing that, you're going to help them to articulate it. And then the third speed is guiding which is really asking great questions like you're doing now um, <laughs> and setting people up to um, talk about the, the three aspects of becoming great, which I would call the what, the how, and the why. Um, you know, what they need to do, why they believe they should do it, and, and how they think it can be done. Uh, we tend to jump into the fixing role too much and tell people those three things. But we know from science that it's much more powerful for them to tell us. And I found in my playing career that there was coaches that at different times did the three different speeds of coaching. A lot of coaches, like you said, fix. Not very many of them follow and very few guide. But I've also experienced the fact that many coaches won't coach until they believe you're ready to hear it. Is that a form? Would you believe that's a form of following, of following the player's lead? As far I as I think that that's yeah, that's that's a great example. Um, and I would say so. Mo a lot of the work that and a lot of the ideas that we're talking about come from this this style of interacting called coaching athletes to be their best, uh, which is based on motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing is this science of communication that says that you can actually change the speed of readiness. Um, that there's a certain way of communicating with someone that allows them to be more or less ready to hear what you have to say. Um, I'll tell you just a very brief story about this was I was, I was in the Mets uh, uh, locker room um, uh, in the clubhouse a long time ago. And, um, and, you know, an athlete was talking to me about, you know, it's a particular struggle they were talking, they were having, and I was fixing, I was like, I was giving them like a, a, basically a blueprint for mental skills coaching. I was saying, all right, we should try some imagery, right? So mental rehearsal, we should try to have a more succinct kind of self messaging before you, you know, get into the, the, the playing situation kind of going through a mental performance routine with them. And they were listening, they were engaged, but they were sort of, and a, and a veteran who I knew very well, because I was with the Mets for, you know, nine years, came up to me and said, Fader, man, people have to know that you care before they care what you know. And I thought he was a genius until I realized that Roosevelt said it uh, <laughs> later on, but he was a genius because he, he was speaking to, um, 
you know, what you're talking about, Ryan, that people need to be ready. But what I've learned from the application of motivational interviewing is that you can you can change readiness by the way you talk to someone, by the questions you ask. So I think the better coaches are the ones that say, you know what, this this guy, this woman, she's not quite ready. I'm not going to step in with this because it's going to land on deaf ears. And I think an elevation to that is to say, okay, they're not ready yet. How should I be to increase the speed of their readiness? What do I do? What, what are the questions I can ask them? What are the ways that I can reflect back to affirm them, to, to point out their strengths that are going to help them to, to increase the slope of the line, the speed of their readiness. And basically to make sure that they know that you're coaching them for what's best for them, not just what's best for you as the coach or the team, but you give, you care about them. Yeah. And I mean, it's so hard because I mean, you know, coaches are playing their own game, right? I mean, as a coach and you know, you've coached, so you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, as a coach, your game is to, certainly win the game, but also to get the athletes to, to play to their best ability. So to be able to let go of that, you know, you, it's like one of these, it's like one of the, one of the best books I've ever read was this book called beginner's mind. Uh, it's a, kind of a Zen book. And one of the things he says is like to control your cows, give them the best, the biggest pasture you possibly can. And so one of the things that's so hard to do is to let go of control, right. And say like, I don't want to tell these people to do it. I remember one time I walked into a locker room, a football locker room, and it just said, someone just wrote on the board, just effing win, right? So it's like, we, I get it. You know, everybody's under this pressure to just get an outcome. But in a, in a, in a powerful way by saying, I, I'm, I'm going to focus on my care of this individual as a person, that actually leads to more opportunities to win. Interesting. I've, I've had the experience where winning teams talk about winning a lot and losing teams don't talk about winning ever. Interesting. Uh, but I can also see where my, my favorite two managers that I've played for are Buck Showalter and, and Terry Francona. And the two of them, I think the reason that they were my favorite managers was because they took care of the players. How'd they do that? Like I can, what, give, you, I can give you a very specific example yeah. right now. It comes right to the top of my mind. Terry Francona, I played for him in Boston, my first major league call-ups uh, before he moved on. But then I played for him again with the Cleveland. And this was towards the end of my career in Cleveland. This was 2021. And I, I got called up twice to Cleveland that year. And my conversation with the general manager the day before I ended up getting called up he was asking me if I was planning to leave the team to go play in the Olympics. And I, and I asked a probing question of, do you have a plan to call me up in the meantime that I would be gone? Right? Like, cause if you're going to call me up to the big leagues, I'll stay. If not, I'm going to go play in the Olympics. I think that's a great opportunity that I don't want to miss. And he said, you know what? You're, you're an insurance policy and, and I'm paraphrasing. We don't have plans to call you up. We would need to, if someone got hurt, but we'd probably be immediately looking for your replacement for an upgrade. So you might get called up for a day or three, but it won't be for very long. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go to the Olympics. Turns out later that day, a catcher got hurt and they needed me to call me up. So I, I know the guy that's making the decision doesn't necessarily want me there. But when I arrived, Terry Francona went out of his way to say, we took a group 
vote as coaches. There was eight of us in the group. The GM asked if we wanted to trade for a former All-Star or to call you up, and the coaches voted 8-0 to zero to call you up instead of trading for an All-Star. So here I was feeling like maybe I, I'm not being valued and, I, and I'm not wanted there, and Terry Francona, as soon as I walked in the door, made me feel welcome, made me feel wanted, and made me feel valued. And I would run through a wall for that man. Such a great example. I mean, it's really powerful. What did you, when you, what did you feel during that conversation and afterwards? Well, I, I, I understood immediately that he didn't need to tell me that, that he told me that for my benefit, which, and I appreciated it because it really changed the way I felt about my, my place and my value on the team. Whereas he didn't need to talk about winning. I was going to do everything in my power to win for him anyway. And that's, that's what I hear you saying is you don't need to talk about what you want. You, you take care of your people, you value people and they'll, they'll work for you. What was your understanding of why they chose to do that? Like, what what was that unanimous? I mean, because they didn't vote seven to one. <laughs> they, they shut. They, it was a shutout, the complete shutout. Um, also, we should figure out who the all star is. We should, you know, you should get him on the oh, show. I, I do. I know who it was. It was okay. they traded for him later after I did go to the Olympics, and someone else got hurt. Um, but it was just such a, a powerful moment and a, and a conversation I'll never forget because I I knew in the moment that he didn't have to tell me that behind doors vote that happened. Yeah. So it was, it why, was, did, why, why do you, do you have a sense or what's your sense of why they voted that way? Uh, what I don't is know. it about you or about, I think it, I think it had to do with the person that I bring in the clubhouse and, and less so with my playing ability on the field. What did they tell you about that? Or what, what did he say about that? I had been in AAA. I had been a good leader for the young players. I had been, you know, a positive voice in the clubhouse win or lose i think those were the things that that had them bring me in versus a personality that they didn't know with so a yeah, better so with I a better playing terry, resume yeah i mean so for me i think what terry did there is actually very consistent with this kind of motivational interviewing approach and and guiding right is that to your point he could have just been like welcome to the club you know we yeah, got a lot so of happy to have you so happy to have you. And and that's what the traditional thing would be. Or nothing, right, at all, right, which exactly. all happens. Zero being like, good luck, right? Like that kind of thing, pat on the back, right? But I think what, what, what he did there was to really make you feel a sense of self-efficacy and confidence, right? It wasn't now about, of course, you're going to do your best to win. But now you're going out there with a sense that you're valued for yourself as a person. And it allows you to what whatever level of energy talent that you have at that particular point in your career is just more likely to come out yeah more likely to to manifest exactly and i and i played great for him i played great for him every time i played for him uh one thing i want to get into for you as a leader within your own organization sports strata but also when you're coaching is you talk about at the end of the day it's not about what you what you know what you say it's all about what you do and within Sports Strata, your organization, you you practice what you preach. What what do you do in your organization that you find very valuable that helps people get the most out of themselves? I know you have a mindfulness practice, you have a, a gifts and games practice that you do every other week. You have a quarterly retreats. What are the things that help build culture and, and build individuals within your organization? I mean, I think the first thing that I think about is. Um, you know, my understanding about leadership 
um, having coached a lot of leaders in business now and worked with a lot of high level coaches is that there, there are two kinds of leaders. Uh, one is a leader that's transactional. That leader is someone who is just getting stuff done. They're effective, right? But they're just focused on getting stuff done. It's the version of like, welcome to the club, let's get it done, right? And um, they focus on tasks, outcomes, things like that. And then there's transformational leadership. Transformational leadership is being genuinely interested in the people you have on the team. And I'd say more than anything else, that's the thing I work on the most. So yeah, we have a mindfulness group. We have, um, I think we, we just did like a, you know, a few months back, a sports strata um, kind of group meeting where we do these quarterly meetings where we do, we practice what we preach, all the stuff we do with youth athletes and college athletes. We do the same exercises that we run with college programs. We do them ourselves. Um, where we, you know, do exercise on communication and affirming each other, all these things that we think are effective. But more than anything else, Ryan, I would say it's like, I really work hard on developing and continue to develop relationships where I really understand the people on the team as people. I understand what makes them tick. I understand their families. I understand, you know, what's going on with them and, and work hard to keep up those connections. And the reason I do that is one, it's not, it's not just to make sure that the team functions well, it's because I'm more invested that way. Um, if I know the people, I wanna come in more, I wanna be there, I wanna lead more, I wanna do more projects, right? It's not just a, a group of people that I work with, it's, it's, it's legit a team. And I really care about the people on the sports drive team. And I know they know me and they, I know their, their families, they know my family uh, and so, I really have a, a deeper connection to the work. So if I'm doing, if I'm out with a football team and I look to the left and to the right, and there are two people on the team, these are like very vivid people to me. They're my teammates. And, and, I, and I think that that's what's strong in many teams is that, you know, you really get to know, we just did a workshop with a corporation and one of the, the research studies that we, we shared, which was really powerful was they did this project in a company and they, they all they did was they said, we're going to have, we're going to mandate that everybody goes out to lunch with someone they don't know every week. And they found that after doing that, productivity and sales went up like 24%, just that intervention. And so, you know, if you think about that, you know, I feel, and, and you probably have examples of this, teams where the players like really know each other. And, and in fact, I don't even think you need to fully like each other, but you really have a sense of who people are and what's important to them. That's huge. And so that's really what I work on for the most part is creating opportunities to do that. Um, and, you know, to the best of my ability, open meetings with that, right? Just where people are talking a little bit and it's not just like we just go right into it. Um, and I think teams that have uh, been able to do that. I remember Kevin Long, the hitting coach of the Mets used to do this thing where he would, um, he would play like a game during batting practice. And everybody would get into this game where it was just like you get certain points for hitting it to part of different parts of the field. And all of a sudden, that environment, it could have just been BP, but he was creating this way of people like interacting and talking. So it doesn't even have to be like, let's sit around and talk about our dreams and hopes and desires. It's just changing it so it's not just the routine thing where we're just going through the activities to make it interactive, to connect, to get to know each other more and to have fun. Yeah, that's so powerful. I, I've been on teams that did the the turn something mundane into a game, 
And the competitive nature of us players just really took over. And competing in practice led to better competing in the games because we had made practice more purposeful. We had raised our level of focus in practice and we had more camaraderie because we were teammates that were competing on the same side, but we also could kind of compete against each other in these other games. So it was, I can definitely see what you're saying there. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think what you're saying, I mean, look, it just, it's competitive. It's you're engaged. Yeah. Like you're, you're really engaged. And I think at the end of the day, that's what makes for a meaningful life is engagement and, and a meaningful relationship uh, and certainly a meaningful team. I, I love that so much. I don't want to keep you for too long. I think we're kind of nearing the end of our time allotment. But what I always ask every guest that I have on here before I let them go is that if you could talk to a young person, a young athlete, a young high achieving aspirer or, or even a young version of yourself, what's the best advice you can give them as far as reaching their potential, not letting that talent go by the wayside or, or achieving their dreams? There are so many things I would say to that person. Um, and I think the first thing I think about is um, I would want to know about the particular young person I was talking to. Um, and I want to know the one thing I'd want to know from them first is why are they doing it? Um, before I gave them any advice, um, that I'm a big believer that to not make assumptions about what people have within them. And so I'd want to know why they were doing what they were doing. But I think that, that what's most important is to protect your dream and to find methods, whether they're people or thinking processes to protect uh, what is most sacred to you about why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and that I think a lot of young people need methods to be able to uh, preserve their dreams and, and keep their dreams alive and close to them, despite what we talked about before, which is negative results. To me, you know, persistence is the key to success. And in order to do that, I think you have to really be able to protect your dreams as you take in information about how you can get better. Protect your dreams. Persistence is the key to success. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jonathan Fader. Thank you for joining me. All in the show notes, we'll have all the information on where to find Dr. Jonathan Fader and check out Sports Strata and his book, Life is Sport. I am Ryan LaVarnway. Thank you for joining us on Finding the Way, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Finding the Way with Ryan LaVarnway. Find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.